Kelly, and I'm going to be reading the passage for us tonight. Um, From Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, as, (laughs) as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, uh, Matthew 5, verse 1, and then 27 through 30. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, you have heard it, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. If you haven't been around RUF that long, you might not know this, but what we're about to do is 30 minutes out of a seven-day week. And thankfully, the other seven days are filled with little touch points and interactions among each other. At your church, with people there, in your community group, maybe at Freshman Fellowship, maybe conversations while you're walking or in your living room with friends in the room. But there's so many of these little touch points uh, where we get to process and work these things out uh, in a slower pace, in a dialogue. There's places where you really do get to kind of bring the questions like, I don't really know what's going on. Or I don't know if this makes sense to me. Like I get it conceptually, but how does it fit with my situation, my story? There's even places that if you've been around this community long enough, you know this is a place where many, many, many have found that they really can go to other people and say, I don't know if I believe this or I don't know how to believe this. We believe there has to be a place in town where you can do that. It's what the church is supposed to be. It's what a lot of your churches are. And as a mission of the church to the campus, it's what we want to be too. There's that um, PSA announcement for getting together and uh, dialoguing about things that right now sound like a monologue as we open up God's word together. With that in mind, let's pray before we get into this. Jesus... I'm very mindful, particularly this week, there's not a single one of us in this room for whom what Lily just read is irrelevant. Nobody's wondering, how does this apply to me? And I pray more than anything else that who we would come to see you as and know you as tonight is the healer and the savior of sexual sinners and the sexually broken, that we would find in you refuge And might we know you as rabbi too? Might we know you as teacher? Might we know you as king? Again, all I have is words, and I have very low hopes for those to be able to accomplish anything, but in your hands, mere words can resurrect people. And so I give you these words, and my friends give you their ears, and we ask for your help. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I think... Anna is at home with a sick kid right now, unless she showed up. And I also perhaps think the live stream might be broken, so I can share an honest thing with you that she probably knows, but 
I'm hoping doesn't. I'm one of those guys who secretly drinks straight from the milk jug in my fridge. I didn't used to be when I lived with a bunch of roommates, but it's Anna and the kids now, and I'm like, we're just all up in each other's space anyway, so who's going to be bothered by this? And so um, I've learned, though, that I think God frowns on people who drink straight from the milk jug. When I had roommates, I definitely believed that, but I got slack. Now I think he frowns on it because if you're a milk jug drinker too, uh, and you've had the cursed experience that I've had, you know he frowns on it. So here's that experience. Uh, You race into the kitchen, you swing open the fridge door, you grab the milk, you look around to make sure no one's watching, you tilt it back, gurgle, 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 and then you're like, this tastes like cheese. And you're like, chew, chew, chew. This feels like cottage cheese. And then you spew it out in the sink and have to quickly come up with some story of what you're doing besides spitting out the milk you drank from the carton. I think Anna is up on what I'm doing uh, more than I realize. But the reason that it, like, that it gets me at this stage of my life is because we always, like, we're, we're milk drinkers. I grew up drinking milk. We have four kids. They drink milk crazy. It's always fresh. It's never old. It's not like your roommate that that thing is like, you know, three shades of a different color two months after. It's always fresh. And so I'll just go there without thinking, pick it up, grab it, and drink it because I'm like, after the the tragic events of the soured experience happens, I'm staring at an expiration date that's still three weeks away. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? How have you spoiled this fast? I know it's a stupid way to start but I think it captures experientially the experience that we have with our desires a lot of times. These desires and these wants that we have in our hearts and our minds and we rush to them thinking we're going to enjoy them and thinking it's going to be refreshing, but somehow it's spoiled in between the last time we were at this desire and this time and we're left with this nasty bitter taste that we cannot get out of our mouths. So I don't know why, some of you are chemistry people, you know why. I don't know why milk that's supposed to be good for another month goes bad two days after you buy it. But it did, and I was left with that taste in my mouth. Our desires go bad, and they spoil, and they putrefy, and they sour because of sin. You'd expect someone like me to say that with his Bible open. We'll get into what exactly I mean by that. But sin spoils desires. It distorts them. It sours them. It turns them bitter. Wasn't necessarily anything wrong with the desires to begin with. Not in every case. But it turns them and leaves this taste in our mouth. So here's a couple of examples to kind of bring this into this room. I've been thinking lately about how difficult this very room can be to walk into. Particularly if either because you're a senior and you look out and you're like everybody's new. Or you're a freshman or a transfer and you look out and you're like everybody's new. And if you're the person in your car kind of praying or hyping yourself up to come into this place, you came in with a good desire, just like the rest of us. You wanted to find a friend, maybe literally. There's someone here that knows you, and you were like searching the room to be recognized. Or you wanted to recognize someone else. We come in with this good desire for friendship. But over time, week after week, that good desire can putrefy and spoil, right? I know it can for me, not so much here, but in other big rooms that I've got to walk into. 
filled with my friends or people that I don't know. That desire can putrefy and it can spoil and leave a bad taste in your mouth and it can either come up through shame of like it's the fourth or fifth week you walk in and you feel ashamed because you still feel like you don't know anybody. You feel invisible and you blame yourself for it. Or that originally good desire to find a friend um, could have putrefied and spoiled and gone rancid and turned into a subtle demand that people recognize you and it can get weaponized and become an accusation that anybody that doesn't look at you or walk over to you and introduce themselves must not like you and must be avoiding you. Can I see a few head nods if you can resonate with this at all? Because like vulnerable moment for me, right? I mean, I know we can relate to this. I hear we talk about it a lot. That's one way that these good desires can spoil and we, th we, we think it's a refreshing thing that's going to leave us unburdened and it can turn on us and hurt us. Another one is a good desire to want to stay on top of schoolwork. You want to stay ahead of the curve. Midterms are here. I don't want to get behind. And that good desire to be in control of your work and your responsibilities, can it not get out of control really fast and become a controlling attitude uh, where School demands more and more of your attention, so you double down more and more. You can say no to more and more friends, no to more and more other just basic human things like sleep or food or exercise or downtime. And that good desire to get on top of your work can just overinflate to the point that it dominates and drives your entire life. Good desires can easily spoil and get distorted into destructive things. You've got your own biographical stories, right, that you could add to this of a good desire that spoiled and took a lot of life away from you. The passage that Jesus is talking about here is what was originally a, a desire for a good thing like human connection and vulnerability and nakedness and sexual union with another person. Uh, it's, it's a good desire of something God gave us as a gift that he invented, not the devil, not the world. He invented it. It's a good desire that has spoiled and gone bad in our hearts and leaves all of us, myself included, in every body in a chair in this room with a bitter taste in our mouths in one way or another, with some kind of story some kind of sadness, some kind of disappointment, some kind of secret struggle, some kind of shame. This is the story of another desire, a good desire that's gone bad and spoiled and extracted and drained a lot of life out of us and other people. Lust is the spoiled milk of sex. How does this distortion happen? A few ways spiritually. You could call these ingredients maybe. And we're not in the passage yet. I'm kind of dancing around. We'll get there. First, the cravings and desires that fill our hearts are dynamic, not static. Now, dynamic just means in motion. They're evolving, they're snowballing, they're going somewhere. They don't stay put. They, they go somewhere. You set it down here and you come back two weeks later and it's somewhere else and it's bigger. They're not static in, a, in the sense that they don't stay put. This is how uh, addiction happens. Every addiction began perhaps with a good desire for a good thing. I want the endorphins of going for a run, and somehow this thing gets mastery over me and takes control of me. Or I like dopamine releases, and the fun and the joy and the release and the euphoria that that brings, 
but then it gets the upper hand because it's dynamic, not static. It has a life of its own and all kinds of other things. At first, we're in control, but not for long. I don't know who said this, so this is not a quote that I have a name for, but it is dead true. This person said, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And the reason why is sin and its distorting effects on our desires has a life of its own. It is a power unto itself. It is not a poodle that takes your orders very well. Uh, It is more like um, a Mike Tyson who just gets angrier when you give it orders. It's dynamic. Uh, This is, these desires are in the driver's seat of your heart if Jesus is not king of your heart. These These are the things in the driver's seat. You're tied up in the trunk. I'll tell you a story about my life that that illustrates that in a little bit. But you're not driving things, your desires are driving things, and you're taking orders from them. Even if though Jesus is king of your life, is Lord of your heart, you want him, you love him, you know him, these desires are like the carjackers always trying to get you at the stoplight to get in and get you out of the seat and take control of the car. So the first thing was that these cravings and desires are dynamic. They have a life of their own. It takes you further than you want to go, makes you pay more than you want to, and keeps you longer than you want to stay. Second, Scripture says that our hearts, apart from God's mercy and His kingship kind of applied to your heart to release you and deliver you, apart from that, the chief characteristic of a human heart post-fall, post-sin entering the world, is deceit. On the list of all the adjectives that you could describe a broken human heart or a fallen or sinful human heart, deceit is at the top of the list, which means you and I are not in on the joke. You and I would not be aware of what's going on in our hearts. You and I would be prone to mislabel things that are actually dark and deadly and dangerous and bad for things that are awesome and exciting and fun and exhilarating, right? That's what we would expect to see if our hearts are deceitful. We would expect to see a lot of rebranding going on. God really didn't say that. He really didn't mean that. It would also mean that these desires fly under the radar. They're metastasizing under the radar. It's the cancer that hasn't been discovered yet. It's the originally good cells that, in a bad way, are replicating too fast, too much, and taking more and more of your body, except that we don't know about it. That's a deceitful heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And then God asked the rhetorical question to prove the point. Who can understand it? Who has figured out a deceptive heart? A self-deceiving heart. Lauren Winner is uh, a, an author, a Christian, wrote the book Real Sex about 10 years ago. She said, this is how sin works. It whispers to us about the goodness of something that's not good. It makes distortions feel good. And it tells us we'd be better off with pleasure in hell than holiness in heaven. That sounds like Genesis 3 kind of stuff, right? Like what was being whispered in Adam and Eve's ear originally that unleashed all this deception and unleashed all this distortion into the world for the first place and also into our hearts. So first, the cravings are dynamic. Second, our hearts are deceitful. Lastly, Jesus says, if your heart is deceitful, that's a really 
really uh, big pickle that we're in because he says the heart is the headquarters. It's central command of everything you think, everything you do, everything I desire, everything I want, everything I hate, everything I dream about. All of that stuff traces exactly directly back to your heart, the essence of who you are. Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart, Jesus says, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Luke 6, 45, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You could add to that. The hand moves, the foot walks, the body does. The mind dreams, the mind desires. Your heart is central. We do what we want to do. You and I are people who do our desires. That doesn't sound like rocket science, and it's not, that you do what you want to do, but we're prone to think that I do what I think is right. Not as much. Nor do we do what we know to be true and good, right? We do what we want. If you didn't want to start your paper yet, your paper's not started yet, regardless of how much you know it's not good to put it off anymore, right? I mean, we know it's not going to go well for us if we, like, eat a ton and never get outside and work out. But if you don't want to work out, you're not going to work out. We do our desires. Because it's out of the overflow of my heart that I behave, that I want, that I crave, that I speak, that I act. The heart is the epicenter of it all. So if you add all these these ingredients up, and you see how it illuminates this passage, I think this is where it leads us. Lust uh, is a distorted, originally good desire for connection and intimacy and vulnerability, but it has been put in a blender of deceit and selfishness and distortion, and it's come out cancerous, and it's come out malignant. And like I said earlier, I know every one of us, if we, if we sat down, you could just sit there and listen to my stories, past and present. And I could sit there and listen to your stories, past and present, of what I just said becoming true in your life. Lust is not love because it steals what doesn't belong to it. It covets and craves what belongs to another. It murders by dehumanizing and objectifying another image bearer of God to become a toy. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, his people, which presumes they struggle with this too, he's saying pretty loudly and radically, friends, don't settle for the distorted desire. Don't normalize the distorted desire. Don't rebrand the distorted version of healthy, good, godly, righteous, attraction, sexual desire, look for the cure. That's really what he's saying. Look for the cure. So the second thing that we're going to talk about is our heart's cure, our distorted heart's cure. The cure is not becoming asexual and swearing off sexuality and swearing off desire and swearing off being interested Nor is the cure what a lot of people think, and I want to ask you, do you think this way? I thought this way most of my life. The cure to our distorted heart and our distorted sexual desire is not to run straight to cut off your hand and gouge out your eye so that you can be more pure and more righteous. 
That's putting the cart before the horse. You put the cart before the horse, there's nothing to pull the cart. You're pushing it with a horse just sitting there. The just say no approach to somebody who is still dead and somebody who's still enslaved by the desires just doesn't work. All it does is it leaves you more and more hopeless and more and more desperate and more and more tired and more and more addicted and more and more ashamed and more and more scared to tell anybody about it. If you don't know Jesus and if he's not king of your heart, you can't rush to any quick fix any strategy to try to stop looking at this kind of thing or to stop getting together with this person or to delete that app, I would encourage you to stop trying those things as a cure and look at Jesus as a cure who walks himself to you. And the reason it's got to be this way is because sin doesn't work in a way that just yields itself to, if you fix the outward actions, the behaviors, the speech, the what your eyes do, what your hands do, how's that supposed to affect your heart, right? We just spent a few minutes talking about this. The heart is the epicenter. The heart is command central for everything else. So you can't go downstream to our actions and what we did on Friday night and what we've done three times this week and say, well, if I can just moderate that and manage that and lessen how much I do that, I'm going to change. It doesn't work that way. Your heart has got to change if your behavior, your actions, and your desires are ever going to change. And that's Jesus' entire point here because yet again, just like he did with anger, just like he's about to do with four more things after this, he's internalizing his law. He's saying, look, God's desire for y'all was not technical rule following and obedience for the sake of rule following. It's, just, it's not like coloring in between the lines. Like, that is not God's heart for his people. I mean, how many of you want to be in a relationship with a man or a woman who technically doesn't cheat on you, but doesn't really want to be with you? How many of y'all want to work for somebody who technically checks the boxes of kind of management best practices, but actually doesn't want to be around you, doesn't want to mentor you, doesn't want to really take an interest in you? We don't want those things. God doesn't want those things either. He's not about technical, kind of impersonal rule following. He's about loving him and following him from our hearts because we want to, because we desire to. That wants and desires are heart, is heart language. When we start talking about those things, we've gotten to central command. We're at the epicenter. We're in the spot where everything happens. And so don't run to behavior change first. You've got to run to heart change. And to run to heart change first, you've got to run to Jesus first. Here's something you should pay attention to. Jesus never teaches us how to change our hearts. I'm unaware of any passage in all of the Bible that instructs you how to change your heart, how to clean your heart, how to alter your desires. You're not going to hear God walk down that path of teaching you how to break into headquarters and change what's most deeply true about you. Instead, what the Bible will do on every page is say, that's the spirit of Jesus' work. That's God's work. How would you get into your heart? I don't mean, we like, we, always, we Westerners point here. 2,000 years ago, they pointed here, like your kidney, that was the center of you. They would be like, 
I love you from the depths of my kidneys would be the, the, the first century poetry. And you're like, what? We say heart. Where's your heart? How do you start tinkering with and adjusting your deepest desires? How do you bend them back to what's good and normal and life-giving away from what's destructive? You can't. God can. He's giving us all these vibrant metaphors throughout Scripture of the leopard can't change his spots. You can't wash away crimson stains, but God can. He can make them as white as snow. Ezekiel 36, God says through his prophet, he says to you tonight, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put in you a new spirit. And I will remove your heart of stone, that old headquarters, I will take that out and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Did you hear it? After God puts a new heart in you by his grace and by his mercy, then he starts saying, guess what's going to change? Your desires, your wants. Last week, we talked about how Jesus fulfilled the law. He said, I have not come to lower the bar for people to hop over the bar and get into heaven said, the earth will blow up before a single dot over an eye in my law disappears and blows up. He said, I have not come to lower the standard or abolish the law. I've come to fulfill, to fully realize the law and the love of neighbor and God that it calls us to. Jesus fulfills the law on your behalf, and he gives the consequences of him obeying perfectly, of him being sexually righteous. He gives that to you so that, with a new heart, now you can follow his law. Because you want to. Because you see it not as burdensome, but as life. You're like, I want to have integrity. I want my heart and my actions to line up. I want to be a generous person. I want to love people, not just lust after them and, and, and use them and consume them. I want to give to them. Listen to what the Bible, this is just a few verses. Listen just to prove my point. In John 4, Jesus says, my food, my life-sustaining energy is to do the will of my Father who sent me. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, to do your will, O my God, that's my desire, because your law is in my heart. Jesus, uh, John says in 1 John 15, or 1 John 5, we know that we have come to know God if we obey his commandments. He says a little after that, this is love for God, to keep his commandments and that his commandments are not burdensome. That's how you really know that, you, that Jesus is king of your heart. If his way, if the paths of life as he describes them are delightful to you, you might not be walking on them perfectly. You might mourn over how slow your pace is and how wayward you are on that path, but it's the path you want to be on because he's on it and you want him. And the way you might be able to discern, maybe I don't know Jesus, maybe he's not king of my heart and ruling over me, is if his commandments are burdensome to you. And you're like, who in the world would want to do this stuff? Like Lauren Winters said, um, heaven sounds boring if it's going to be filled with righteousness and obedience and love. But for the person who's come alive to know God and has a new heart, heaven is beautiful because Jesus is there and sin is not. 
This is what Jesus meant last week in the passage right before this when he said to his people, your righteousness must exceed that of the clergy, the scribes, the Pharisees, all that. And he meant it. Their righteousness was skin deep. It was external technical rule keeping. Meanwhile, there was just a world of darkness alive inside of them. Jesus said your righteousness must really actually exceed that of these pretenders. There's a real love being formed in you, a real desire for obedience, a real re-aiming of your sexuality toward holiness and goodness and God's original intentions for it. So what heals us, friends, is Jesus' healing touch. Now, I said I had a story about this. I'll be brief about it, but really the story is, you know, right around the time uh, the few months, I guess a year or so, maybe two, three years. Wow, my story is darker than I thought. Three or so years before God converted me, right after I graduated UGA, I had gotten to a scary place uh, with lust, with sexual immorality, with porn. And I'd gotten so far down that road and so stuck in that road, I shocked even myself because I thought I was a good kid. And I thought I colored in between the lines and I didn't cross the really, really, really bad stuff, the bad lines. And uh, I was not planning on this. I had not scheduled this. But uh, one night in this room, God changed my heart through his word. It was an ordinary sermon. Wasn't anything spectacular about it. But he gave me eyes to see. He wrote his law in my heart. He gave me his spirit. And I was alive. And I was talking to Andrew at dinner last night, and this had never occurred to me until our conversation last night. I was like, you know, for the, for the next year and a half after I first became a Christian, I didn't even think about that stuff. Had no desire. It would be like you saying, do you want to, like, stand in front of my car while I come at you? At I was like, no, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound appealing to me. Porn just wasn't appealing to me. I was not interested. No hold over me. And neither did a lot of the other things that I was just addicted to and stuck in. The downtown scene, no interest. And then some of that stuff came back as temptations and struggles a couple of years later. But I, what, I, what, what occurred to me last night is, you know what? I think God gave me a year and a half or two year reprieve from that just to prove to me that he could do it. And just to show me, because I would have doubted otherwise, Ben, you're a new man. And he drew this big old line of demarcation between old me and new me. And then he allowed me to struggle with those things again to keep me on a short leash of dependence with him, lest I grow more arrogant than I already was. That's what I mean, a new heart. I didn't want that stuff. I wanted Jesus. I wanted to grow. I wanted to learn how to repent out of those patterns. I didn't want to look at people that way. I didn't want to treat them that way anymore. And I'm not saying that was me. I didn't just tell you I gouged out my eye and cut off my hand and look at the results. I said he changed my heart and look at the results. So friends, where does this get us? It gets us to the end of this passage where we get practical and finish with the, um, the radical things Jesus says about cutting off hands and gouging out eyes. If those are the things that are causing you to stumble, if those are the things that are giving you opportunities to dehumanize and covet and thieve and steal and mangle other human beings who bear his image. Jesus is getting intense, and he's getting radical, and um, I mean, I don't even need to tell you that. You saw it. You heard it for yourself. But here's some of what he's saying, and we'll, I'll try to be extremely practical on this last point. 
as we talk about not just the cure for a distorted heart, but the habits of a new heart. So God changed my heart. He changed my desires, and it wasn't so much that I felt like I had to follow him and obey him. It's that I wanted to, but it still leaves the big old question of, well, then how? Where do you start? What does that look like? Practically, not just love your neighbor, but like how? What's the first step? Jesus gets really practical here. First thing is this. He's going to ask you the question. It's, I'm, I'm interpreting this. It's, this is my language here, but he's asking you, is lust to you the serial killer that broke into your house and has to get evicted, or is it the long-lost friend that you want to pull out the futon for and say, hey, let's reconnect. Let's get to know each other better. What's your relationship with the dark desires in your heart, what, however they express, however they manifest in your life? Is it the serial killer that you know, if this guy stays in my house, devastation is coming? He has to get evicted now. Or is it kind of a lackadaisical, nonchalant, I'll just go to bed, we'll see where he is in the morning. That's a bad route. Jesus says, leave lust unattended, unrepented of, unattacked in your heart. You can read on the page the ultimate terminus that that leads to. Life as far from God as you can get. He says hell. So that's the initial question is, who is this to you, the serial killer or the friend? What would it look like to evict the serial killer then? What would it look like to kick him out if you're like, that dude's bad and he tells me to do bad things and he makes me want bad things and I can't have someone like that in my ear or living in my house. Jesus says, um, evicting him might look like resisting those thoughts if that's how they're coming into your mind. Those thoughts of like, look a little longer or click on that uh, or change my password again so I can get this app again. Kicking or evicting that serial killer in that moment is being very clear about who your friend is and who your enemy is. And it could be asking for help. It could be resisting those thoughts. It could be learning more and more how to control your thoughts, which is possible. How to fight against those thoughts. Jesus says, cut off the avenues that lead to stumbling. He's like, cut it at its source. If that door is what you go through to get to sin, brick over that door. He said, if your eye is the avenue, the pathway that is enabling you to get to indulging what is killing you, Gouge out your eyes so you can't walk that path anymore. If it's your hand, he's saying, cut it off. And he's saying, even things that are most precious to you, he's not being literal. Nobody in church history has taken him literal here. He's, in Hebrew culture, the right hand was the sign of strength. It was the thing that, that most symbolized your value and your strength. And Jesus says, are you willing to do away with even that which is most precious to you, most valuable to you? seems most necessary to a good and happy life. Are you willing to part ways with that to be with me? J.C. Ryle, an old bishop in England, said, if you and sin are friends, you and Christ are not. And the corollary is true, too. If you and Jesus are friends, you and sin are enemies. It is the thing that is vandalizing what is most beautiful and good in you that he is doing and you want it out. 
And when you forget that, you need friends in your life who say, what are you doing? And when you keep downloading Tinder or Grindr or whatever else it is, you need a friend who knows you well enough to not shame you in that moment, but to say, give me your phone and we're going to set up parental controls and I'm going to have the code. And if you need it for some school thing, I'll get you into your phone. That's what cutting off hands look like. I can probably count 10 friends of mine who have had flip phones as 40-year-old men. It's embarrassing to have a flip phone as a 40-year-old man, but it's a badge of honor in the kingdom of God. And I bet their wives and their kids respect them all the more for it. Are you willing to part with your phone if that's what it takes? Are you willing to part with your boyfriend or your girlfriend if you have tried and tried and tried to walk in integrity and walk in the light, but you're too weak or she's too weak or y'all are too weak? Are you willing to take a break and ask for some help so that you can walk with Jesus? Friends, these are the things Jesus is talking about. If anything causes you to habitually, repetitively walk away from him and prefer something else to him as life, Get rid of it yesterday. Get rid of it now. I want to end where we started with reading what Lily read at the very beginning. I'm just going to read this because this Jesus who calls you to cut things out of your life and to give up and to walk with him is also the Jesus who's the fulfillment of this psalm, who is the healer of the sexually broken, who is the coach and the leader and the king of the sexually struggling, even as they know him. He is compassionate and gracious, He is slow to anger, even in your ongoing temptations and struggles. Even in those struggles, he is abounding in love for you, his people. He will not always accuse. He will not always harbor his anger forever. He will not treat you what your track record deserves. He will not repay you according to your performance or your iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for you who fear him and run to him for refuge. As far as east is from west, which is infinite, so far has he removed your shame, your transgressions, your mistakes, your regrets, your guilt from you. That is who is calling you to join him in the fight for your restoration and your renewal. We'll pick up this story next week. Let's pray. Jesus, I've said it a few times because I, I can't read these passages and think if, if, if all we had was, if you're tempted to sin sexually, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, flee, stop doing it, um, wow, we would just leave here in dark gloom. But the fact that you, who died publicly shamed for our sexual sin, to release us from its power and its condemnation and its guilt, the fact that you are the one saying these things to us means we can trust you, we can listen to you, and we can love you. Pray that you will encourage us wherever we are in our journey with you as you free us and make us new, even sexually. We pray this in your name. Amen.